Hello and welcome to the second episode of Pod to Progress, a podcast by Path to Progress. I'm Sam Weinberg, the Executive Director of Path to Progress, and today I'm also one of your podcast hosts. Tracy Stokat and I were joined by Eliza Orlands. Eliza is one of the most progressive candidates, if not the most progressive candidate, running to be the next district attorney of Manhattan. And we were able to chat with her about her plans for creating a more equitable Manhattan for all Manhattanites. And yes, I know that on our first two episodes, we've just been talking with candidates, not just in New York City, but in one borough. And trust me, if you're not a Manhattanite, I get it. I can count on one hand the number of times I've been to New York City. Tracy, my co-host today, does live in Manhattan. I don't. But wherever you live, you'll want to hear the duration of this episode because, as Eliza puts it, Manhattan can be a trendsetter for the rest of the country. Not just in terms of culture and theater and art and literature, but in terms of law and real progressive prosecution. Prosecution that puts the working class first. Prosecution that doesn't target communities that are disproportionately poor and disproportionately of color. And prosecution that instead focuses on violent and white-collar criminals. Progressive prosecution is possible, and whether you're in Manhattan or anywhere else, you'll want to hear what Eliza has to say. She's really smart, was really fun to talk with, and you can tell that she absolutely loves what she does. So without further ado, here's Eliza Orleans. Hi, Eliza. Welcome to Path to Progress, um, our second podcast episode. We're so excited to have you here. Um, so just to kick us off, we'd like to start with a very simple question. Who is Eliza Orleans? What is something that folks that are listening might not know about you? Oh my gosh, I feel like I'm such an open book that uh, everyone knows everything about me. I live my life very publicly, especially these days as a candidate. So um, what might people not know about me? Um, I think that there's a perception that I don't know that I like have it together and I think really I'm just kind of a mess behind the scenes um you know trying to uh just keep everything together just like everybody else um and I'm really just a nerd who loves to sit on my phone doing the New York Times crossword puzzle or playing spelling bee um for fun <laughs> I love that or, sorry, Tracy, have you ever gotten to the level on Spelling Bee where it says, you know, you can't find any more words? Queen Bee, obviously. Yes, obviously. <laughs> okay, good. Good to hear so it. So Eliza Orleans is the Queen Bee. That's that's what we can say right there. <laughs> Whenever possible. And so something something that I noticed that you, um, you know, have, have touted is your lack of prosecutorial experience. And so that's something that people who are running for DA wouldn't usually, um, you know, that wouldn't be a... a a bragging point. So why do you think that your lack of experience would actually make you a better um, district attorney for Manhattan? Well, for so long, our criminal legal system has been one that is systemically racist. It's cruel. It's unjust. It's not keeping us safe. It's over prosecuting low level offenses, not holding people accountable for serious crimes. And it's wasting taxpayer money. And so I think that all of the things that people tout as their prosecutorial experience and the ways in which they are doing such good work fails to acknowledge all of these shortcomings of the way in which the system has always operated. So I think really having someone come in with this outside perspective who understands the damage and harm and racism of the system is how we will bring about these reforms that we so desperately need to see. 
Yeah. And on the, on the flip side of that, um, you have an experience as a public defender. So, um, moving from that lack of experience, like how do you think that your experience as a public defender will serve as an asset um, if you are elected to Manhattan DA? And um, also, how do you think that your experience as a public defender has um, shaped you and your ideals and you know motivated you to this point where you are right now? I mean, so much of my entire life has been being a public defender. I've spent every day of my professional career um, in the courthouse representing thousands of people who couldn't afford to hire a lawyer and really seeing the cruel, unjust ways in which the system operates. So, so for example, I tell a story often about a client of mine who I represented who um, was an assistant manager at a grocery store in lower Manhattan. And he'd worked at the same store for 25 years, made his way up to assistant manager, um, you know, never been in trouble, like family man. Uh, and one night he was working the closing shift. He bought two bags of groceries with his employee discount to bring home to his family. He packed up the groceries, locked up the store, walked over to the subway to go home. And he puts his groceries on the seats next to him and just settles in for his long ride home. It's an uncrowded subway car. It's late at night. And two police officers get on the train, grab his groceries, dump them to the ground, put him in handcuffs and take him to jail for the night for the crime of occupying multiple seats on a transit facility, literally taking up two seats on the subway. So, you know, and his case is not unique. It's, I mean, it, it, I tell that story, not because it's some outlier or some anomaly. This is standard practice that the DA's office prosecutes these low-level offenses, you know, people who are not doing anything to impair public safety. These are, you know, people who are basically being criminalized for the color of their skin, the neighborhood in which they live, you know, maybe in other circumstances, poverty or mental health issues or substance use disorder. And so all the policy positions I take are are ones that are completely built off the foundation of having spent my career as a public defender and really seeing the impact of these prosecutions and realizing that we need to do so much better. So you're know, going off of that, a lot of people, you know, know what a public defender does. You're, you know, someone who gets up there and defends people from, you know, uh, from various charges, including the like ones that are as absurd as the one you just mentioned. But what is what does a district attorney do? And um, and what does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? So the district attorney's job is to make prosecution decisions, meaning, you know, not just what crimes get prosecuted and what crimes don't, although that is a big part of it, but what charges are brought, you know, whether something carries a life sentence or a mandatory minimum, um, what sentences are sought, whether someone is detained pre-trial, you know, whether money bail is sought um, and in what amount. And there's so many decisions, whether someone can receive an alternative to incarceration, you know, treatment for mental health issues or substance use disorder. And all of these things are so critically important to the direction a human being's life can go, their family, you know, et cetera. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think that really speaks to the importance of the DA's office, you know, to New Yorkers and to people who are local here. But why um, should our listeners who are not in New York, why should they care who the DA of Manhattan is? How is this going to impact um, national politics? So the DA is so important 
not just here in Manhattan, but across the country, because people do look to Manhattan, even though, you know, we're a small jurisdiction, it's one that has a huge national impact, you know, makes such huge decisions. And we've seen the impact already on families across America based on the decisions that the current Manhattan DA made, for example, you know, the decision to not prosecute the Trumps back in 2013 is one that theoretically had he gone through with that prosecution and granted, I don't have the full case file in front of me, but from the evidence that's publicly available, it seems as though that case should have been brought um, that, you know, if that, if that case had been brought, we might never have had a president Donald J. Trump. Yeah, so um, I'd love to dive right into some of your police reform policies. Um, for folks that might not be as familiar with your policy platforms, could you explain some of the main components of your plan to hold police accountable? Of course. So, you know, police accountability is something that is one of the major policy platforms I've put forward because I think for far too long, police have been able to operate with impunity. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the the brutality and assaults and, you know, terrorizing of communities that we're seeing nationwide right now, but also, you know, things beyond that, like the perjury we're seeing in the courthouse. And time and time again, as a public defender, I've seen police officers walk into court, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth under oath, get on the stand, whether it be in front of a jury, in front of a judge, you know, in front of a grand jury, and lie under oath. And, you know, even if I'm able to acquire video evidence to show that the police officer was not being truthful and make this case, the best case scenario is usually that they will um, dismiss the case against my client. But is the police officer held accountable or are they back out on the street the very next day doing the exact same thing to someone else? Well, that's of course what's been happening. And their testimony is allowed to continue to be used to put other people in jail and prison. So, you know, my, my policy really involves um, so many elements of really thinking through what it would mean to hold the police accountable. So it's not just collecting that data and making it transparent and available to everyone, but fighting for, you know, real consequences and refusing to use officers as witnesses who are known to have committed misconduct or to have lied. Um, and And I think that these are you know, really critical in rethinking what public safety looks like, you know, in, in, in order to have a truly safe and just New York, it means fundamentally transforming the way in which we hold the police accountable. So, so where exactly does, you know, the DA's office fit in there? Because oftentimes district attorneys require um, police assistance in prosecuting other cases. And so then, you know, taking a, a, an approach that's tougher on the police, um, could be a setback in some in some cases. How would you how would you avoid that? Well, so of course there has to be a working relationship there. But um, having a police accountability unit that's completely siloed off from the rest of the DA's office, the people who in, interact with the police every single day, you know, really will prevent any um, any difficulty in um, you know continuing to work together to build other cases. And your website mentions that you plan on advocating for legislative changes to hold police accountable, namely in changes to the grand jury process, which um, you were kind of touching on a little bit earlier. So um, what changes must be made there? I mean, there are so many things that need to happen, but, um, you know, I think that that basically there, I mean, we've seen laws start to to 
be enacted, for example, 50A, which requires that the disciplinary records be released, um, especially to defense counsel, because that's something that we had so little access to um, from the start. And it was something that was so difficult to get a hold of. You know, we had to do these motions to try to uh, access this data. And this is something that should be. Um, you know, automatically turned over, but there are still things that are not turned over. And, um, you know, it really has to be um, fully transparent to the public, um, but also we need to ensure that, uh, that all of the things that are happening um, in terms of discovery reform, in terms of police accountability, in terms of strengthening um, legislative, legislatively strengthening um, the, administrative uh, penalties that can be administered. Because right now, like the Civilian Complaint Review Board, the CCRB for short, uh, has no teeth. So even if there's a finding of misconduct, they basically have no ability to effectuate real um, repercussions on the police. You know, then the police can overrule them. You know, they there really needs to be a tangible changing of um, of the structures within the the NYPD and the way in which they interact with government. Thank you for that. Um, and a, another um, policy issue on on your um, platform that I'm particularly interested in discussing is the decriminalization of sex work. Current Manhattan DA Cyrus R. Vance Jr. announced in in April that Manhattan will no longer pros prosecute prostitution. But what is the difference between this choice that our current DA made and the full decriminalization of sex work that you plan on implementing as Manhattan DA? Well, we need to fully decriminalize sex work. This is a, um, you know, this is a racial justice issue, an economic justice issue, a gender justice issue, an LGBTQIA justice issue. This is one of the most intersectional issues, and it's one that I have been very strongly outspoken on for a very long time. Um, and so what Cy Vance is doing doesn't go nearly far enough. You know, I think the example I often give to people to kind of explain what these prohibition models do, which, you know, say, oh, we're not going to prosecute sex workers, but we're still going to prosecute people who purchase sex, you know, even if it's adults in consensual sex, you know, this is that this is something where they call it oftentimes the Nordic model, but you know, really what it is is a prohibition model. And um, I say, imagine if if your profession, if you were a hairdresser and someone said to you, well, it's illegal to cut hair in New York, you can't cut hair and you can't go get a haircut, it's illegal. Um, okay, but we're gonna decriminalize it so you can give haircuts but it's still illegal to go get a haircut. So the police would still be coming around your job all the time looking for people who were coming to get their haircut because they would be trying to arrest those people. They would still be, um, you know, you wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, do your job anywhere that someone else would feel nervous that the police were gonna come by. You wouldn't be able to vet your clients with other hairdressers to make sure that this person isn't dangerous or isn't gonna stab you at work. You know, you have to, you have to, the person would be disinclined to give you their real names. You wouldn't be able to say, hey, these are the safety protocols that I have here at work that I wanna enforce. And, you know, you would potentially put your health and, and safety at risk. So, you know, really the only way to protect people from violence, um, not just violence from clients, but also from the police is um, by fully decriminalizing sex work. 
And, and what would this, you know, this probably is uh, something that doesn't affect the average New Yorker, but why should the average person, you know, take interest in, in this issue? Well, I mean, are we presuming this is someone who has empathy for other people and cares about, um, you know, racial justice issues and, and cares about trans women of color? You know, in that circumstance, like yeah. you, everybody should care. Um, but in the event that they don't, they should still care that this is how their taxpayer money is being spent. That, you know, millions and millions of dollars are being spent on the vice squad, for example, that is enforcing these, these you know, these prohibitions that are ineffective, that are not keeping them safe, that, you know, the, that are wasting their, their taxpayer dollars on these things. So, you know, in the event people don't care about the humans involved, they should care about, you know, the, the absolute waste of money. You know, in, in reality, it, it actually makes it harder to prosecute traffickers when sex work is criminalized because people are fearful to come forward, especially if they themselves are, you know, don't have um, status, like they're undocumented or they're permanent residents, you know, and then they risk putting themselves in danger by coming forward to report having been trafficked. Um, and so having a, a policy where they themselves would not be prosecuted would actually facilitate the prosecution of traffickers. It makes a lot of sense. I like that you have the um, the human argument and then also the, uh, the libertarian argument there on top of it. <laughs> Um, hey, we you all know, care where our tax dollars are going. <laughs> exactly. It's so funny. People yeah. think of the political spectrum as being a line where like you're either over here or you're over here, but it's more like a, a circle like that doesn't come to a close. Like, and, and it's like you might be over here or over here, but you're actually closer than people who are somewhere in the middle. Yeah. yeah. Well, before I even jump into this next question, I just have to say, how impressed I am with how thorough your website is. Um, Sam and I were talking about this before. There's just so much policy on there. And I feel that a lot of candidates um, in any of the races are kind of afraid to really stake themselves into, into issues and into policy. Um, as candidates and i just have to say like thank you for your transparency and there's just so much wonderful information on there so anybody who's listening please check out eliza's website right now um but on your on your website you mentioned your intent to create an environmental justice unit for the da's office um which is something that we saw vice president kamala harris implement during her time in san francisco as da um why do you feel that this is necessary here in new york city and how would this unit function? Well, thank you for noticing how detailed and thorough our policy platforms are. I'm really proud of what we've put forward and that I have always been consistent on these things. That's why I'm not afraid to say the things that I believe because this is what I've always said. I've never wavered or faltered or, you know, been a weather vane depending on which way the wind is blowing. This is, these are the positions I've always, I've always held. And, and I think that one of the things that I am proposing that doesn't exist here in New York is an environmental justice unit, because I think we can't exclude our built environment from what public safety looks like. And I think if we're tasking our district attorney with keeping New Yorkers safe, that environmental justice is a huge part of that. And really thinking about the ways in which the DA can use her, and I say her, even though no woman has ever been Manhattan district attorney, because we're manifesting here. Um, 
Yes, I love that. She can use her power to actually protect people from the slow violence of environmental crimes. You know, the the same people who are disproportionately impacted by our unjust criminal legal system are, in fact, hurt the most by these, um, you know, environmental injustices of whether it be lead paint or toxic mold or, you know, air quality issues. It it hurts black, brown, and low-income New Yorkers more so than anyone else. And so, you know, I, I think that there should be a unit there that I will create when I become DA with attorneys who are focused on these issues and who will um, actively investigate these things rather than locking up people like my client I mentioned before, who takes up two seats on the subway. And something else on your website that, that stuck out to me is your plan to create an animal rights bureau. Could you speak a little bit to that as well? Definitely. Well, I think standing up for New Yorkers includes, um, you know, non-human living beings. And I'm so proud to, to have proposed an animal rights bureau um, that, you know, when we implement will be the, the first of its kind as well. Um, and that that goes beyond just the the individual cases. Um, but really addresses the underlying cases of the problems of violence toward animals, but also um, the supply chain issues, you know, whether it be puppy mills or whether it be, you know, corporate animal abuse or fraudulent advertising. Um, these are the things that are so important. And I think that New Yorkers really do care a lot about the injustices um, towards towards animals um and as a proud dog mom myself i'm i i'm i'm very oscar sleeping on the floor next to me um i'm i'm so proud to be endorsed by um voters for animal rights um and nye class I, I love like between the environment and the animal like we have a lot of nature going on here exactly think maybe your uh, your time on survivor maybe played into your love for nature <laughs> No, if anything, it would have pushed me the other direction. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> I, I think I love nature in spite of my time in on Survivor, <laughs> not because of. Well, here's, here's a question about that. You know, since you were on Survivor, um, you know, the last time that in the United States we elected a, a reality TV show star, it did not end particularly well. Um, what makes you uh, uh, different in that case? Well, listen, I have spent far more of my life in the courtroom, you know, fighting on behalf of human beings uh, in the trenches than I ever spent in front of cameras. Um, for me, it was just a, a side thing, a, a show that I was a big fan of, got to compete. I was lucky enough um, to be on Survivor and then to get asked back. Um, but certainly I'm uh, nothing like the former occupant of the White House. And in fact, uh, my team and I were just talking this morning about how similar he is to one of my opponents, you know, someone who has, you know, self-funded, she's funded by Trump and, and Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley donors. She's, you know, trying to, um, she's evaded paying federal taxes for, for years um, and now has taken to attacking the press, members of the press when, um, pushed on some of these issues, like the fact that she didn't register as a Democrat until 2017. And this is someone who is trying to buy the election. And I think democracy is not for sale, you know, and I'm so proud of the grassroots campaign we're running. I have over 10,000 individual contributions. Um, I've raised over $1.1 million and I'm really so lucky to be supported by the people. But this woman is investing millions and millions of dollars um, 
of her own money and of of donors to, to big Republicans um, into her campaign to try to buy this seat so that as a career prosecutor, she can continue to lock up uh, poor people of color and continue to turn a blind eye to the crimes committed by those who have power and wealth and connections. So actually speaking about that former reality TV star, um, also former resident of, of New York City, um, as Manhattan DA, how would you handle the investigation and um, hopeful um, eventual prosecution of former President Donald Trump? Well, without commenting on specifics of a case that isn't yet before me, I think uh, it is fair for me to say that the investigation should continue and that if Donald Trump committed crimes in Manhattan, I will prosecute him. Um, I think that's, you know, I've been outspoken about the fact that I think the prosecution in 2013 should have gone forward um, and that Vance really dragged his feet. So I think I've been one of the most outspoken about this issue. Um, and I think it's really important that that people know there's no there's no one who is above the law. So uh, what are you going to do about, you know, white collar crime, violent crime in New York City? Your website has uh, mentions that you're not uh, going to prosecute almost any misdemeanors. Could you speak a little bit to that? Um, how is that a social justice issue? Is that a racial justice issue? Just any final thoughts, I guess, before you have to hop off? Well, so it's it's all of the above. It's, um, you know, I think that the the decline to prosecute policy that I have laid out is one that really does center equity and fairness, but also safety for all New Yorkers. You know, it's something that truly will keep our city safe. And we're lucky enough to now have, you know, progressive district attorneys getting elected across the country where we can actually look at the data. For example, Rachel Rollins in Boston, you know, they did it, the National Bureau of Economic Research did a study and showed that the, the cases that she was declining to prosecute, these 15 low-level offenses, when you decline to prosecute those cases, it made it less likely that those people would have future contact with the criminal legal system. So we're actually making our city safer by declining to prosecute misdemeanor offenses that, you know, are not um, crimes that are making people less safe. But I also do think that there are ways in which the district attorney can be an agent for safety without being, you know, punitive and carceral and, you know, just resorting to incarceration, uh, for every social issue. You know, I think there are so many things that we really need to do, which is, you know, making sure that alternatives to incarceration are available whenever possible, making sure that people have the help and treatment that they need for mental health issues or substance use disorder. And that really is how we will, you know, there there will will save people money, will actually keep people safe, will invest in communities and and make New York you know, a, a, a better place to live for everyone. Very admirable goals. Um, all right, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you, I thanks for having me. I can't yes. even believe it, four days till election day. Um, I know. Good luck. It's yes, totally so nuts. For anyone who's listening, um, please go check out Eliza's website, elizaorleans.com, um, to look at any of these policy issues that we just spoke on today, to maybe last minute volunteer, um, if there's any time left to do so, and if you have not already voted, please go do so. Early voting is underway. Election day is this Tuesday, the 22nd, and we're hoping for exactly. Eliza Orleans as our next Manhattan DA. Exactly. Eliza Orleans. Go to elizaorleans.com. 
donate if you can give, you know, a dollar, $5, $25. Like this is so important. And as I said, we're up against a literal billionaire trying to buy this seat. Um, and we're relying on grassroots donations. So, so grateful. Um, so lovely to talk to you both. And also, if you can't donate, sign up to volunteer. We need people at so many different poll sites to make sure that we're talking about these issues. Um, we have the most incredible field team um, led by Alex Kaplan, who is who Tracy knows, who's phenomenal. Um, and really, we just have the most passionate, engaged volunteers. You'll see them all over New York in their pink shirts with their pink clipboards being like, have you heard about the only public defender running for Manhattan DA? Um, so I just feel so lucky. and. Um, and so grateful, and, and I know that we're gonna we're gonna be able to do this. Great, Eliza awesome. Orleans, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me.